אפילו מה יצא לו מהיהו? מה לא לסופו, מה לנגיע ממה? My topic is really thinking about the Pacific. And I wanted to start with a little island very far north of here called Guam. And in Guam, they have number plates on their vehicles like we all do. And because it's part of America, they have a slogan on each of their number plates. The slogan is, where America's day begins. Now, the issue is that most Americans don't know that. In fact, most Americans can't find Guam on a map, and they don't know the relationship between Guam and America, which is that it is what's called an unincorporated, organized territory. So here's a little bit of America, the only bit of America on the other side of the dateline that Americans don't understand. And that means they think it's marginal and unimportant. But actually, if you go to Guam, One of the words the U.S. military, which occupy one-third of the island, call Guam, is they call it the tip of the spear. Now, all of us here can probably figure out where the spear is pointing. It's pointing to China. And actually, probably the first place to go in any nuclear war between China and America will be Guam. It is the eyes on the horizon. It's where the um, ships are based and the aircraft are stationed. So we think, oh, what kind of country doesn't understand the Pacific parts of it? There's a wonderful novel by Salman Rushdie called The Moor's Last Sign. In that, he writes, um, the trouble with Britain is that its history happened overseas, so they don't understand it. <laughs> Now, actually, when we reflect on that, we think, oh, New Zealand's a bit like that, <laughs> right? We celebrate Gallipoli. We think of Anzac Day. In fact, so much of what we commemorate in New Zealand happened overseas. And yet, what I'm suggesting is we don't really understand it. And I know that we kind of reflect and think that you know, New Zealand isn't as bad as the United States and not as bad as Britain and being ignorant of its neighborhood, right? Of its own place. So I actually bought, because I thought, what goes better in a pub than a pub quiz? <laughs> and this is really a basic kind of pub quiz. It is a blank map of the Pacific. In it, there are 21 Pacific countries and territories. And right now, I will buy a beer to anyone who will stand up and say they can name all of them. Okay, so we'll start in the top left corner. Uh, is it Palau? No. Okay, so which one is it? It's the Northern Marianas. Okay, so, so we're down to one now. <laughs> Okay, what's this one? It's Palau. No. <laughs> that is Nauru. And it doubles the shame because that was actually part of New Zealand. So many of you will not know that Nauru was a New Zealand colony, along with Australia and Britain. So it was a jointly governed colony. And New Zealand did that wonderful thing of instead of governing it, they handed over the governance of the colony to a company who proceeded to extract all the phosphates, and those phosphates sat behind one of New Zealand's economic miracles, which was the, what's often known as the Grasslands Revolution. So the pastoral revolution, which fed New Zealand and produced white gold, good old-fashioned milk. I, maybe we, it bears reflecting that in this room of wonderful, smart people, we could not fill in a map of our own neighborhood. So we're not perhaps as virtuous as we imagine when we approach our neighbors. 
And I think it's really important because New Zealand, although we often think of New Zealand as the settled entity, it's actually something that's deeply in motion. And I have kind of two stories I tell to illustrate this. Um, one is about what happened when they first settled New Zealand. So when they first settled New Zealand, they sent out letters patent with someone, Captain Hobson, to become the first governor of New Zealand. But when he left England, he wasn't governor of anything because there was no British colony. So they wrote all these letters up which were to empower him to become the governor of New Zealand. They discovered after he went out that they made a mistake and they got the wrong latitude for New Zealand. So instead of specifying that New Zealand was south, they mistakenly put north. And that meant that actually the definition of New Zealand in the colonial office ran as far north as Vanuatu and New Caledonia. What that meant was that there was a real problem from the very beginning. New Zealand ran all the way up into the Pacific. Now, that would have been easily corrected because they sent out, they rushed out a correction. It should be an S, not an N. But by the time they got to New Zealand, they'd copied this over into all these other official documents. And actually, the definition of the Anglican Sea of New Zealand. So when the first bishop of New Zealand arrived... His area ran all the way up to New Caledonia and Vanuatu. And because he believed, he didn't believe in accidents, this is Bishop Selwyn, he said this was an act of God. I was supposed to have this part of New Zealand. So before anyone could change it, he started sending ships up to <laughs> what was then New Hebrides and what's now Vanuatu. So when he got up there, of course, this became an Anglican part of New Zealand. So this is why we have... Mission Bay, which is the Melanesian mission, Melanesian Road. And of course, Kohimarama, where St. John's is, right? There is now a Kohimarama in the Solomon Islands. So through these accidents, we created New Zealand. But what it tells us is that New Zealand is an artifact. Someone just wrote some numbers on a page and produced it. And even when you change those numbers, it doesn't change in ways that you think. So that's one way in which New Zealand is still a process. And another, which is far more compelling to many people in this room, was that in 1981 and 82, a Samoan woman took a court case in New Zealand. She, they were trying to deport her, and her claim was that because she was born in Samoa when New Zealand was a Samoan colony, she was a New Zealand citizen. Now, many of you will know that there was no such thing as a New Zealand citizen before 1947. We, were, we just had British subjects. So she took this court case and went all the way to the Privy Council. And the Privy Council ruled in her favour. And it said every Samoan born between 1924 and 1948 was a New Zealand citizen. That was in 1982. Right. New Zealand's response <laughs> was to immediately move to squash that. So they, although that had been found to be legally true, they introduced an act to remove the citizenship of those Samoans. So tens of thousands of Samoans who had been recognised as New Zealand citizens, New Zealand then turned around and said, you're not New Zealand citizens. And all their children who would have then been entitled to New Zealand citizenship lost their citizenship. In fact, the day we passed that act, the Western Samoan um, Citizenship Act, I think it's called, was the day New Zealand lost the most people 
tens of thousands, probably over 100,000 New Zealand citizens were disenfranchised in 1982, including me. My father was one of those. I know they took our citizenship away. Again, a sign of how New Zealand is a process. And so that process continues to unfold. And the difference is that a lot of that relation, those relationships and connections to the Pacific are unfolding now inside the boundaries of what we think of as New Zealand. But actually, New Zealand isn't as simple even now as we think. So the most northern part of New Zealand is... Yeah, Tokelau. So Tokelau is part of what's called the realm of New Zealand, which is the constitutional entity of New Zealand. It's the part of New Zealand that the Governor-General presides over. It includes places, well, most importantly, it includes Tokelau and Niue, but it also includes the Kermadex, has some relationship with Ross Territory and so forth. So there is this thing called the realm of New Zealand, where New Zealand currency prevails, where if you're born in Cook Islands, for instance, you have a New Zealand passport. And then there's this other thing that most New Zealanders think of as New Zealand, which is called New Zealand proper, which is North Island, South Island, Stewart Island, and the Chatham Islands. So even something which we think of as so simple, what is New Zealand, is actually not so simple, because New Zealand's nearest neighbour is Samoa to the south. So if we imagine a New Zealand that looks so profoundly different that it ranges up to the equator, <laughs> has Samoa to the south, we can start to think of how the New Zealand we imagine might not be the one we're actually dealing with. And I guess that's what I wanted to think about. That history is deep in New Zealand. If we were in daylight, I think maybe we could see one of the most prolific sites of New Zealand's connection to the Pacific, which is the Chelsea Sugar Refinery. Since almost New Zealand's inception, the sugar has come from Fiji. And that Fiji sugar company was called, in true, was called Colonial Sugar <laughs> Refinery. <laughs> so those ships, now they come from other places as well. So New Zealand has been implicated in that massive migration that led to there being a half a million Indians living in Fiji. What else have we been connected to? Well, almost everywhere I look, you know, whether it's Mission Bay or elsewhere, you can see these deep connections to the Pacific that are in New Zealand. I mean, the one I'm thinking about right now is a really iconic New Zealand drink, Raro. And Raro began as fruit juice put in cans exported from the Cook Islands to New Zealand. And then, of course, what we ended up getting was our workers from the Pacific. <laughs> so the very, not only did we get the phosphates that made New Zealand grass grow and produce cows and milk and power New Zealand's economy, we then, when we moved to an industrial economy, imported Pacific people to power the process and manual work of New Zealand. So it was a quite a striking thing that so much of New Zealand's development has been bound up in the Pacific at the same time as most New Zealanders have been completely um, unaware or have not acknowledged it. So we now have 300,000 Pacific people in New Zealand whose ancestry goes back there. That's, I don't know, three Dunedins or something. Right, this is not insubstantial. So New Zealand has long both depended on the Pacific and disavowed that dependency. 
And I think that's really striking. And then there's moments of, I call them existential crisis, where New Zealand is confronted with a specific significance and doesn't know what to do. You know, the first one was in 1905, when the Japanese defeated the Russians in the Battle of Tsushima. And all of a sudden, New Zealand realized that the Japanese Navy could just sail to New Zealand. And so a lot of our emplacements come from this Russian slash Japanese scare. Now, the trivia folks will know that the Japanese Navy did sail to New Zealand not even 10 years later. And the Japanese Navy actually escorted the first Anzac troops to Gallipoli. So they became our ally, not our enemy. So there was another existential crisis in 1914, but it wasn't the Japanese, it was the Germans. As the German Pacific Fleet, New Zealand realized it was part of the Pacific because there's the fleet. We're scared. Then on December 10th, 1941, so on December the 7th at Pearl Harbor, you know, the US Pacific Fleet was sunk. And then on December the 9th and 10th, Task Force Z, which was the Royal Navy fleet based in Singapore, was sunk. So in three days, the two navies defending New Zealand were sunk, and New Zealand looked north and realized we're a Pacific nation, <laughs> and the only thing that stands between us and Japan is Fiji. New Zealand had sent all its soldiers to Europe and North Africa, so they only had a few left to send to Fiji <laughs> to actually defend New Zealand. And I guess the most recent existential crisis is now when New Zealand looks north and it's fearful of China. At the same time as China is our most important economic partner, New Zealand is very nervous about Chinese activity in the Pacific. So all of these things remind New Zealanders we're Pacific nations, but only for us to conveniently forget. And so we live in a future in New Zealand where we know the Chinese influence will grow, and that reminds us of the significance of the Pacific in all our lives. But at the same time, we struggle to come to terms with Pacific people in New Zealand. Now, in a book I wrote just over a year ago, I talked about there being two kinds of futures we need to think about. There's a future that's already happened, and a future that we can make happen. And last year, 2018, was the first year in New Zealand's history, essentially since about 1845, um, where the majority of babies born in New Zealand were not Pākehā. So most babies born last year were Māori, Pacific and Asian. That future's already happened. In 20 years, those babies are going to be adults. There is very little we can do to change that. So we have to not only learn to live with it, but learn to make a better New Zealand out of those young people. So that future's already happened. But the future we need to make happen, which is the one that allows those young people to thrive and prosper, is the one we're struggling with. Because actually in New Zealand, a New Zealand which has a majority of Māori, Pacific and Asian babies, actually still looks a lot more like a 1950s or 1960s New Zealand. Look at who's in charge of our companies, of our universities, our schools, of our organisations, our hospitals. Everywhere we look, it looks more like 1950 than it does like 2030. How do we make a future that is actually going to allow a very different New Zealand to occur? So actually the place that's been most dramatic is actually in New Zealand's parliament. Right? 
If we look right now, of the 24 ministers New Zealand has, 13 are Polynesian. That's pretty amazing stuff because not many other parts of New Zealand does our leadership look like that. But I thought there might be four future dimensions I might ask you to think about whether we'll see this change happen or things about these dimensions that are worth thinking about. Now, one is, and that example of parliament is useful, is that this change won't be procedural, what I call procedural. It won't mean that gradually one-year-olds will become two-year-olds and slowly New Zealand will change. Because if that was going to be the way change happened, we should already have seen that marginal change throughout New Zealand. You know, Six to eight percent of corporates should be Pacific people. Right, six to eight percent of government departments should be Pacific people. That hasn't happened. That is not going to happen. And actually what will happen is something quite different. I think this change won't be a gradual bottom-up process. It will actually be quite um, striking. It will be quite disruptive. So the example of somehow producing a majority Polynesian ministry is a good one. That is what the change will look like. It will appear to come out of nowhere. Take, for example, our, our foreign policy. Despite years of people like me reminding government this was our strength, that New Zealand's strength in acting in the Pacific was its own Pacific people, it took some time to get there, but all of a sudden, the Pacific Reset, as it's called right now, is essentially that. It's centred around using Pacific people in New Zealand as New Zealand's key leverage and relationship in its key foreign policy area. So all of a sudden, Pacific people are at the very center of New Zealand's foreign policy. The Pacific future will also be a very different one in terms of its gender. Now, if, if you come to the University of Auckland or indeed any university, you, it's pretty noticeable, and the figures at the University of Auckland are north of 66% of our students are women. Right. So actually, most of the Pacific people in higher education are women. And actually, in management positions, MB's numbers show us most of the Pacific people in management are women. So something quite radical is going to happen around that. And that issue has been one of the reasons why Pacific pay gaps have been so wide, because Pacific women are the major earners, so they get double whammy around being ethnic minorities and women. But that will mean the future looks different too. So I think the specific future is also going to be either completely obvious to you or you will not see it coming. And the reason I say that is because the change will not be even. Pacific people are the most segregated people in Auckland. So there's only a one in three chance that a Pacific person has a white person in their neighborhood. That's Johannesburg, um, think pre-civil rights, America South. Those, those are the same kinds of levels here in Auckland. Right? And that means that a lot of this change is happening in very concentrated areas. So the people who are around this change will see it, but the people who are very distant from it, whether it's on the North Shore or the parts of the North Shore where there are no Pacific people, or whether it's in the West Coast, won't see it coming. And I think the other thing is that the driver behind so much activity in this sort of space has long been 
our ethical or altruistic position. So we've provided things for Pacific people because it's the right thing to do. Or um, if you're on the left because it's political necessity because Pacific people vote left <laughs> and have delivered at least two governments to New Zealand. But that moment is kind of past now. I mean, we can keep doing things because it's the right thing to do, but actually it was never at sufficient um, intensity or for sufficient duration to make a difference. The reason we do things now is quite different. You know, the reason that PWC is getting into Pacific stuff is not an altruistic motive. <laughs> it's a profit motive. Other businesses are doing it because if you do not get into a business which is open to Māori, Pacific and Asian people, you've instantly lost 50% of New Zealand's market. You do it now because not doing it will cost you. And the example which is not talked about enough in this way is the Disney film Moana. Disney made the film Moana um, mostly using New Zealand talent. So most of the name actors, <laughs> the chief musician, um, were Pacific people connected to or from New Zealand. Now, did they do that as a favour or because it was the right thing to do? Of course not. <laughs> right, they made an effort to do it in the right way. It was a bit feeble. But at the end of the day, that movie grossed, before it went to DVD, you know, close to 700 million US dollars. So the New Zealand model has typically been we need to support Pacific people to tell their stories. The Disney model was, damn, Pacific stories are worth a billion dollars. And Disney is right. I wanted to use that example too because I think one of the most dramatic changes we're seeing, led by Pacific people, is the way that Pacific people have transformed this creative economy. Having been locked out of so many corners of the economy, what has actually had to happen in Pacific communities is to find other ways of making a living. And young people have found ways of generating income in the creative economy that are actually quite remarkable. So Dinah and Stallone, who made Three Wise Cousins, right? Three Wise Cousins, which they made on their own, is the 10th highest grossing New Zealand film of all time. By my count, eight of the top 10 grossing New Zealand films are either by or about Māori and Pacific people. So by that Disney quotient, the question isn't why would we make a Māori and Pacific film? The question is why would you make any other kind of film? I mean, honestly. Do international audiences want to see a kind of, you know, intense domestic drama about a Pākehā family in the West Coast? Well, actually, international sales suggest not really. <laughs> this is what I mean. There, there have been new opportunities in this creative economy that um, people have found. If you imagine the visual landscape of New Zealand has been transformed by Pacific art, and in fact, probably the most iconic working New Zealand artist is Fatufeu, whose symbols are universal in New Zealand. <laughs> you can go to places where there are no Pacific people and they're painting his poor. Pacific people brought an entire genre, the most contemporary genre of music, and made it contemporary in New Zealand, which is hip-hop. Hip-hop means Pacific people plus some Māori artists. Fashion. <laughs> Another area where for many years style Pacifica and now there's a new fashion festival that's based on in Otara. All of these parts of work have shown how creative economies can work and actually produce income and, and sustainability in, in New Zealand. 
And if you map that against the economy that we're currently saddled with, which is driven by two very carbon-heavy um, industries, so the dairy industry and tourism, and there we have Pacific people who've crafted a sustainable um, future. So I will finish with just a place that I think epitomizes this innovation where this future is already happening in a kind of sovereign and interesting way. And this is my favorite shopping center in Auckland, which is Otahu. About four years ago, a major multinational chain moved into Otahu. They spent millions on marketing and advertising, and they lasted about 11 months before shutting up and leaving. That was Carl's Jr. Roughly the same time, a far less major Samoan franchise, <laughs> Binatis, <laughs> moved into Otahu. You know, fast forward four years, there's often a line at Binatis, and there's an empty Carl's Jr. sitting on Atkinson Ave that was built for Carl's Jr. and hasn't been occupied since. Most of Otahu is occupied, and actually many of the consumer items you can get in Otahu which is literally a kilometre from New Zealand's largest mall, Sylvia Park, you could not get at Sylvia Park. So if you want to get a tauvala, a shirt that's like 5XL, um, <laughs> you need size 15 shoes, high-heeled shoes. You know, everyone knows you don't go to Sylvia Park. You go somewhere like Otahu. And there's a whole economy that is born up there. And what's really interesting about it is Otahu is really an intersection between Asia and the Pacific, and actually there's almost very little New Zealand <laughs> in it, except for those, of course, Asians and Pacific people are part of it.